Chapter Five, Part One of How I Found Livingstone. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. How I Found Livingstone. Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, including four months' residence with Dr. Livingstone. By Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter 5, Part 1. Through Ukwe, Ukami, and Udo, to Usegua. On the 21st of March, exactly seventy-three days after my arrival at Zanzibar, the fifth caravan, led by myself, left the town of Bagamoa, for our first journey westward, with forward for its motto go. As the Kirangosian rolled the American flag, and put himself at the head of the caravan, and the pagazis, animals, soldiers, and idlers were lined for the march, we bade a long farewell to the dulce far niente of civilized life, to the blue ocean, and to its open road to home, to the hundreds of dusky spectators, who were there to celebrate our departure with repeated salvos of musketry. Our caravan is composed of twenty-eight pagazis, including the Kirangosi, or guide, twelve soldiers, under Captain Embarak Bombay, in charge of seventeen donkeys and their loads, Selim, my interpreter, in charge of the donkey and cart and its load, one cook and sub, who is also to be tailor and ready hand for all, and leads the grey horse. Shaw, once mate of a ship, now transformed into rear-guard and overseer for the caravan, who is mounted on a good riding-donkey, and wearing a canoe-like teepee and sea-boots. And lastly, on the splendid bay horse presented to me by Mr. Goodhue, myself, called Banna Makuba, the big master, by my people, the vanguard, the reporter, the thinker, and leader of the expedition. Altogether, the expedition numbers on the day of departure three white men, twenty-three soldiers, four supernumeraries, four chiefs, and one hundred and fifty-three pagazis, twenty-seven donkeys, and one cart, conveying cloth, beads, and wire, boat fixings, tents, cooking utensils and dishes, medicine, powder, small shot, musket balls, and metallic cartridges, instruments and small necessaries, such as soap, sugar, tea, coffee, Liebig's extract of meat, pemmican, candles, etc., which make a total of a hundred and fifty-three loads. The weapons of defence which the expedition possesses consist of one double-barrel breech-loading gun, smooth-bore, one American Winchester rifle, or sixteen-shooter, one Henry rifle, or sixteen-shooter, two stars breech-loaders, one Jocelyn breech-loader, one elephant rifle, carrying balls eight to the pound, six single-barrelled pistols, one battle-axe, two swords, two daggers, Persian kumars, purchased at Shiraz by myself, one boat-spear, two American axes, four pounds each, twenty-four hatchets, and twenty-four butcher-knives. The expedition had been fitted with care. Whatever it needed was not stinted. Everything was provided. 
Nothing was done too hurriedly, yet everything was purchased, manufactured, collected, and compounded with the utmost dispatch, consistent with efficiency and means. Should it fail of success in its errand of rapid transit, to Ujiji and back, it must simply happen from an accident which could not be controlled. So much for the personnel of the expedition and its purpose. Until its point de mer be reached. We left Bagamo, the attraction of all the curious, with much eclat, and defiled up a narrow lane shaded almost to twilight by the dense umbrage of two parallel hedges of mimosa. We were all in the highest spirits. The soldiers sang. The Kirangozi lifted his voice into a loud bellowing note, and fluttered the American flag, which told all onlookers, Lo, a Musungu's caravan! And my heart, I thought, palpitated much too quickly for the sober face of a leader. But I could not check it. The enthusiasm of youth still clung to me, despite my travels. My pulses bounded with the full glow of staple health. Behind me were the troubles which had harassed me for over two months. With that dishonest son of a Hindi, Saw Haji Palu, I had said my last word. Of the blatant rabble of Arabs, Banyans, and Baluchis, I had taken my last look. With the Jesuits of the French mission, I had exchanged farewells, and before me beamed the sun of promise, as he sped towards the Occident. Loveliness glowed around me. I saw fertile fields, riant vegetation, strange trees. I heard the cry of cricket and peewit, and sibilant sound of many insects, all of which seemed to tell me, at least you are started. What could I do but lift my face towards the pure glowing sky and cry, God be thanked? The first camp, Shambagonera, we arrived at in one hour thirty minutes, equal to three and a quarter miles. This first, or little journey, was performed very well, considering, as the Irishman says, the boy Salim upset the cart not more than three times. Zaidai, the soldier, only once let his donkey, which carried one bag of my clothes and a box of ammunition, lie in a puddle of black water. The clothes have to be rewashed. The ammunition box, thanks to my provision, was waterproof. Kamna perhaps knew the art of donkey driving, overjoyful at the departure, had sung himself into oblivion of the difficulties with which an animal of the pure asinine breed has naturally to contend against, such as not knowing the right road, and inability to resist the temptation of straying into the depths of a manioc field. And the donkey, ignorant of the custom in vogue amongst ass-drivers of flourishing sticks before an animal's nose, and misunderstanding the direction in which he was required to go, ran off at full speed along an opposite road, until his pack got unbalanced, and he was fain to come to the earth. But these incidents were trivial, of no importance, and natural to the first little journey in East Africa. The soldier's point of character leaked out just a little. Bombay turned out to be honest and trusty, but slightly disposed to be dilatory. Aledai did more talking than work, while the runaway Faraji and the useless-handed Mabrukai Burton turned out to be true men and staunch, carrying loads the sight of which, 
would have caused the strong-limbed hamels of Stambol to sigh. The saddles were excellent, surpassing expectation. The strong hemp canvas bore its one hundred and fifty pounds burden with the strength of a bull-hide, and the loading and unloading of miscellaneous baggage was performed with systematic dispatch. In brief, there was nothing to regret. The success of the journey proved our departure to be anything but premature. The next three days were employed in putting the finishing touches to our preparations for the long land journey, and our precautions against the Masika, which was now ominously near, and in settling accounts. Shamba Gonra means Gonra's field. Gonra is a wealthy Indian widow, well disposed towards the Wasangu, whites. She exports much cloth, beads, and wire into the far interior, and imports in return much ivory. Her house is after the model of the town-houses, with long sloping roof and projecting eaves, affording a cool shade, under which the Pagazis love to loiter. On its southern and eastern side stretch the cultivated fields, which supply Bagamoo with the staple grain, Matama, of East Africa. On the left grow Indian corn, and mahogo, a yam-like root of whitish colour, called by some manioc. When dry, it is ground and compounded into cakes, similar to army slapjacks. On the north, just behind the house, winds a black quagmire, a sinuous hollow, which, in its deepest part, always contains water. The muddy home of the brake and rush-loving, kiboko, or hippopotamus, its banks, crowded with dwarf fan-palm, tall water-reeds, acacias, and tiger-grass, afforded shelter to numerous aquatic birds, pelicans, etc. After following a course north-easterly, it conflows with the Kingani, which, at distance of four miles from Gonra's country-house, bends eastward into the sea. To the west, after a mile of cultivation, fall and recede in succession, the sea-beach of old, in lengthy parallel waves, overgrown densely with forest grass and marsh-reeds. On the spines of these land-swells flourish ebony, calabash, and mango. Safari, Safari, Leo! Pakia, Pakia! A journey, a journey to-day, set out, set out! rang the cheery voice of the Kirangozi, echoed by that of my servant Selim on the morning of the fourth day, which was fixed for our departure in earnest. As I hurried my men to their work, and lent a hand with energy to drop the tents, I mentally resolved that, if my caravan should give me clear space, Unyanyembe should be our resting-place before three months expired. By six a.m. our early breakfast was dispatched, and the donkeys and bagazis were defiling from Camp Gonra. Even at this early hour, and in this country place, there was quite a collection of curious natives, to whom we gave the parting, quarry, with sincerity. My bay horse was found to be invaluable for the service of a quartermaster of a transport train, for to such was I compelled to compare myself. I could stay behind until the last donkey had quitted the camp, and, by a few minutes' gallop, I could put myself at their head, leaving Shaw to bring up the rear. 
the road was a mere footpath and led over a soil which though sandy was of surprising fertility producing grain and vegetables a hundredfold the sowing and planting of which was done in the most unskilful manner in their fields at heedless labour were men and women in the scantiest costumes compared to which adam and eve in their fig-tree apparel must have been on grand tenue we passed them with serious faces while they laughed and giggled and pointed their index fingers at this and that which to them seemed so strange and bizarre in about half an hour we had left the tormatama and fields of watermelons cucumbers and manioc and crossing a reedy slough were in an open forest of ebony and calabash in its depths a deer in plentiful numbers and at night it is visited by the hippopotami of the kingangi for the sake of its grass in another hour we had emerged from the woods and were looking down upon the broad valley of the kingangi and a scene presented itself so utterly different from what my foolish imagination had drawn that i felt quite relieved by the pleasing disappointment here was a valley stretching four miles east and west and about eight miles north and south left with the richest soil to its own wild growth of grass which in civilization would have been a most valuable meadow for the rearing of cattle invested as it was by dense forests darkening the horizon at all points of the compass and folded in by tree-clad ridges at the sound of our caravan the red antelope bounded away to our right and the left and frogs hushed their croak the sun shone hot and while traversing the valley we experienced a little of its real african fervour about half-way across we came to a sluice of stagnant water which directly in the road of the caravan had settled down into an oozy pond the pagazis crossed a hastily constructed bridge thrown up a long time ago by some washenzi samaritans it was an extraordinary affair rugged tree-limbs resting on very unsteady forked piles and it had evidently tested the patience of many a loaded Maniamwezi, as it did those porters of our caravan our weaker animals were unloaded the puddle between bagamoo and genera having taught us prudence but this did not occasion much delay the men worked smartly under sure supervision the turbid kingani famous for its hippopotami was reached in a short time and we began to thread the jungle along its right bank until we were halted point-blank by a narrow sluice having an immeasurable depth of black mud the difficulty presented by this was very grave though its breadth was barely eight feet the donkeys, and least of all the horses, could not be made to traverse two poles like our biped carriers. Neither could they be driven into the sluice, where they would quickly founder. The only available way of crossing it in safety was by means of a bridge, to endure in this conservative land for generations, as the handiwork of the Wasengu. So we set to work, there being no help for it with american axes the first of their kind the strokes of which ever rang in this part of the world to build a bridge be sure it was made quickly for where the civilized white is found a difficulty must vanish 
the bridge was composed of six stout trees thrown across. Over these were laid, crosswise, fifteen pack-saddles, covered again with a thick layer of grass. All the animals crossed it safely, and then, for a third time that morning, the process of wading was performed. The Kingani flowed northerly here, and our course lay down its right bank. A half a mile in that direction, through a jungle of giant reeds and extravagant climbers, brought us to the ferry, where the animals had to be again unloaded. Verily, I wished when I saw its deep muddy waters, that I possessed the power of Moses with his magic rod, or, what would have answered my purpose as well, Aladdin's ring, for then I could have found myself and party on the opposite side, without further trouble. But, not having either of these gifts, I issued orders for an immediate crossing, for it was ill-wishing sublime things before this most mundane prospect. King Ware, the canoe-paddler, espying us from his break-covert, on the opposite side, civilly responded to our halloos, and brought his huge hollowwood tree skilfully over the whirling eddies of the river, to where we stood waiting for him. While one party loaded the canoe with our goods, others got ready a long rape to fasten around the animals' necks, wherewith to haul them through the river to the other bank. After seeing the work properly commenced, I sat down on a condemned canoe to amuse myself with the hippopotami, by peppering their thick skulls with my number twelve smooth-bore. The Winchester rifle, calibre forty-four, a present from the Honourable Edward J. Morris, our minister at Constantinople, did no more than slightly tap them, causing about as much injury as a boy's sling. It was perfect in its accuracy of fire, for ten times in succession I struck the tops of their heads between the ears. One old fellow, with the look of a sage, was tapped close to the right ear by one of these bullets. Instead of submerging himself as others had done, he coolly turned round his head as if to ask, why this waste of valuable cartridges on us? The response to the mute inquiry of his sageship was an ounce and a quarter bullet from the smooth bore, which made him bellow with pain, and in a few moments he rose up again, tumbling in his death agonies. As his groans were so piteous, I refrained from a useless sacrifice of life, and left the amphibious horde in peace. A little knowledge concerning these uncouth inmates of the African waters was gained even during the few minutes we were delayed at the ferry. When undisturbed by foreign sounds, they congregate in shallow water on the sandbars, with the fore half of their bodies exposed to the warm sunshine. When thus somnolently reposing, very like a herd of enormous swine, when startled by the noise of an intruder, they plunge hastily into the depths, lashing the waters into a yellowish foam, and scatter themselves below the surface, when, presently, the heads of a few reappear, snorting the water from their nostrils, to take a fresh breath and a cautious scrutiny around them. When thus we see but their ears, forehead, eyes, and nostrils, and as they hastily submerge again, it requires a steady wrist and a quick hand to shoot them. I have heard several comparisons made of their appearance while floating in this manner. Some Arabs told me before I had seen them that they looked like dead trees carried down the river, 
Others, who in some country had seen hogs, thought that they resembled them. But to my mind they looked more like horses, when swimming, their curved necks and pointed ears, their wide eyes and expanded nostrils, favour greatly this comparison. At night they seek the shore, and wander several miles over the country, luxuriating among its rank grasses. To within four miles of the town of Bagamoyo, the Kingani is eight miles distant. Their wide tracks are seen. Frequently, if not disturbed by the startling human voice, they make a raid on the rich corn-stalks of the native cultivators, and a dozen of them will, in a few minutes, make a frightful havoc in a large field of this plant. Consequently, we were not surprised, while delayed at the ferry, to hear the owners of the corn venting loud halloos, like the rosy-cheeked farmer-boys in England, when scaring the crows away from the young wheat. The caravan, in the meanwhile, had crossed safely, bales, baggage, donkeys, and men. I had thought to have camped on the bank, so as to amuse myself with shooting antelope, and also for the sake of procuring their meat, in order to save my goats, of which I had a number constituting my livestock of provisions. But, thanks to the awe and dread which my men entertained of the hippopotami, I was hurried on to the outpost of the Belouche garrison at Bagamoyo, a small village called Kikoka, distant four miles from the river. The western side of the river was a considerable improvement upon the eastern. The plain, slowly heaving upwards, as smoothly as the beach of a watering-place for the distance of a mile, until it culminated in a gentle and round ridge, presented none of those difficulties which troubled us on the other side. There were none of those cataclysms of mire and sloughs of black mud and over-tall grasses, none of that miasmatic jungle with its noxious emissions. It was just such a scene as one may find before an English mansion, a noble expanse of lawn and sword, with boscage sufficient to arguably diversify it. After traversing the open plain, the road led through a grove of young ebony trees, where guinea fowls and a heart-beast were seen. It then wound, with all the characteristic eccentric curves of a goat-path, up and down a succession of land-waves, crested by the dark green foliage of the mango, and the scantier and light-coloured leaves of the enormous calabash. The depressions were filled with jungle of more or less density, while here and there opened glades, shadowed even during noon by thin groves of towering trees. At our approach fled in terror flocks of green pigeons, jays, ibis, turtle-doves, golden pheasants, quails, and moor-hens, with crows and hawks, while now and then a solitary pelican winged its way to the distance. Nor was this enlivening prospect without its pairs of antelope and monkeys which hopped away like Australian kangaroos. These latter were of good size, with round bullet heads, white breasts, and long tails tufted at the end. We arrived at Kikoka by 5 p.m., having loaded and unloaded our pack-animals four times, crossing one deep puddle, a mud-sluice, and a river, and performed a journey of eleven miles. The settlement of Kikoka is a collection of straw huts, not built after any architectural style, but after a bastard form, 
invented by indolent settlers from the Mimra and Zanzibar for the purpose of excluding as much sunshine as possible from the eaves and interior. A sluice and some wells provide them with water, which, though sweet, is not particularly wholesome or appetizing, owing to the large quantities of decayed matter which is washed into it by the rains, and is then left to corrupt in it. A weak effort has been made to clear the neighborhood for providing a place for cultivation, but to the dire task of wood-chopping and jungle-clearing the settlers prefer occupying an open glade, which they clear of grass, so as to be able to hoe up two or three inches of soil, into which they cast their seed, confident of return. The next day was a halt at Kikoka. The fourth caravan, consisting solely of Wamyamwezi, proving a sore obstacle to a rapid advance. Maganga, its chief, devised several methods of extorting more cloth and presents from me, he having cost already more than any three chiefs together. But his efforts were of no avail further than obtaining promises of reward if he would hurry on to Arne and Embi, so that I might find my road clear. On the 27th, the Wanyamwezi having started, we broke camp soon after at 7 a.m. The country was of the same nature as that lying between the Kingani and Kikoka parkland, attractive and beautiful in every feature. I rode in advance to secure meat, should a chance present itself. But not the shadow of vert or venison did I see. Ever in our front, westerly, rolled the land waves, now rising, now subsiding, parallel one with the other, like a ploughed field many times magnified. Each ridge had its knot of jungle or its thin combing of heavily foliaged trees, until we arrived close to Rosako, our next halting place, when the monotonous waver of the land underwent a change, breaking into independent hammocks clad with dense jungle. On one of these, veiled by an impenetrable jungle of thorny acacia, rested Rosako, girt round by its natural fortification, neighbouring another village to the north of it, similarly protected. Between them sank a valley extremely fertile and bountiful in its productions, bisected by a small stream, which serves as a drain to the valley or low hills surrounding it. Rosako is the frontier village of Ukwe, while Kikaro is the northwesterly extremity of Uzaramo. We entered this village and occupied its central portion with our tents and animals. A kitanda, or square light bedstead, without valance, fringe, or any superfluity whatever, but nevertheless quite as comfortable as with them, was brought to my tent for my use by the village chief. The animals were, immediately after being unloaded, driven out to feed, and the soldiers to a man set to work to pile the baggage up, lest the rain, which during the Masika season always appears imminent, might cause irreparable damage. Among other experiments which I was about to try in Africa was that of a good watchdog on an unmannerly people who would insist upon coming into my tent at untimely hours and endangering valuables. Especially did I wish to try the effect of its bark on the mighty Wagogu, who, I was told by certain Arabs, would lift the door of the tent and enter whether you wished them or not 
who would chuckle at the fear they inspired, and say to you, "'Hi, hi, white man, I never saw the like of you before. Are there many more like you? Where do you come from?' Also would they take hold of your watch, and ask you with a cheerful curiosity, "'What is this for, white man?' To which, of course, you would reply that it was to tell you the hour and the minute. But the Mogogo, proud of his prowess, and more unmannerly than a brute, would answer you with a snort of insult. I thought of a watchdog, and procured a good one at Bombay, not only as a faithful companion, but to threaten the heels of just such gentry. But soon after our arrival at Rosoko, it was found that the dog, whose name was Omar, given him from his Turkish origin, was missing. He had strayed away from the soldiers during a rain-squall, and had got lost. I dispatched Mabrukai Burton back to Kokoka to search for him. On the following morning, just as we were about to leave Rosako, the faithful fellow returned with the lost dog, having found him at Kokoka. End of chapter 5, part 1